Welcome to the Bottom Line Up Front Podcast. I'm Siat Colon Lopez, your four senior listed advisor to the chairman. As always, this is a forum for hard conversations, getting to the bottom line up front, and arm people with the facts. Today, I have two great special guests, and I want to start first by introducing Dr. Shauna Springer. Shauna is a Harvard graduate, and she has spent quite a bit of time helping the Marine Corps deal with issues, post-traumatic issues, and also with the uh, 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 residue of injuries based on TBI and other combat-related injuries. She is an accomplished author. She's done a lot of great work, and she's gracing us with her presence here today to have a tough conversation about things that we can do when it comes to alternative therapies to deal with PTSD. Also, along with uh, Doc Springer, we're just going to refer to Doc as Doc, uh, we have Mr. Michael Geyer, who is an accomplished uh, filmmaker. He's got a great resume. He's a jack of all trades when it comes to the, to the arts. And uh, we'll go ahead and give you a little bit more background as this conversation progresses on everything that Michael has done. But I was introduced to Michael uh, via a documentary that I watched. And it is something amazing about key therapies that are being implemented right now to help not only wounded warriors, people in combat, but also people dealing with other stresses from life, which is basically leading to more productive human beings. So with that, uh, Doc, Michael, welcome to the podcast. How are you guys doing today? Great. Thank you, Siak. It's great to be here. Yep. Excited. Now, outstanding. And, uh, you know, again, this has been a while in the making, so I really appreciate your time to be here today and to address our audience. So, Doc, uh, starting with you, uh, give us a little bit of background on the work that you have done. Sure. So here's the bottom line up front. We're losing irreplaceable people because they feel like they're broken and that post-traumatic stress is a life sentence. Mm -hmm. The reason why I work over time to change this narrative is because I know that there are new treatments available that work, that are highly effective. And Michael Geyer's movie, Wounded Heroes, is critical because it presents and documents many of the treatments that are coming out now that are available for people. So we have lost too many irreplaceable people because of this sense that uh, nothing will work and they become hopeless over time when the treatments that they try are not effective. And so the work that I do in my writing um, and in my speaking is designed to really help people shift the paradigm for how we treat trauma. And I think there are many shifts that are needed in how we see trauma and how we treat it. Um, but there's so much hope. No, great. And that was clearly evident in some of the people, some of the subjects that you had in the documentary, Michael. And uh, uh, Doc Springer is also featured on the documentary. So, Michael, tell us a little bit more about the research you conducted and why you created that film. Well, I met a guy in San Diego named Carl. He was battling post-traumatic stress. He was in his 20s and he was on a lot of medications. He was on 18 and they had just lowered it to 16 different prescription medications. And he said it wasn't helping. It was just a Band-Aid. And so after that interview, and just shocked that that was even possible, I realized we needed to produce a documentary that would give real solutions and help people get behind get post-traumatic stress behind them and their lives back. So that started me on this venture. 
And it was a three-year project. I knew nothing about post-traumatic stress when I started it, but I learned so much about it over the course of the three years. And the most important thing is that you can get your life back. As, as Doc Springer said, it's not a life sentence. You, you can get post-traumatic stress completely gone and out of your life. And I only know that because I've seen so many in- veterans that I've interviewed and talked to that experienced that. They no longer have post-traumatic stress. And so I met Doc Springer through a mutual friend. I was looking for an expert to come on in the documentary and just talk about what are next steps. You've seen all these great treatments and programs, but what do you do now for success? And so uh, we interviewed her and she ended up having so much great information. I ended up putting her throughout the film as one of the experts. And we've become friends since she's got her book, Warrior, which is outstanding. And she's been on a lot of different uh, interviews and podcasts. And every time she writes or says or does anything, seriously, Doc, uh, it's so insightful and beneficial. She's just a tremendous help to those who are in this battle. In, in helping them to find success and get their lives back and post-traumatic stress gone. No, yeah, you, and, and uh, you know, Doc's reputation actually uh, precedes her because I was at a, an event here just this past weekend and it was with uh, the organization TAPS and uh, you have some friends in that organization, uh, Doc. And uh, I told them that I was filming this this episode with you guys, and they were excited about it because they have seen the rewards of all of the research and uh, the mechanisms that you're bringing forward. Now, when we're talking about losing people uh, and exploring the ground, I think that that is critical because to think that the methods that we have used in the past are going to be effective with the issues of the future is insanity. So there are many things that we have on the table right now, many that you brought forward, Michael, into uh, the documentary. One specific mechanism that you brought up is the stellar ganglion block, which I have had three of them so far, and they have helped me personally. And my wife will be the best uh, advocate for the SGB because she's actually getting somebody back that is rational and not jumpy and edgy and so on. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, go to Doc and just tell us a little bit more about your research and the data that you're collecting on the stellate ganglion block. Thanks. So one of the big paradigm shifts that we need, big shifts in thinking that we need, is that what we've called post-traumatic stress disorder is actually a biological injury that's maintained by changes in how we think and behave. So when we first came up with PTSD, the diagnosis, that was important at that time because it it told people that, you know, this is not just in your head. This is a real problem, a real struggle. And so it gave it a name and that was important for establishing it. But to your point, we need to evolve. And the evolution needs to be that it literally is in your head and an injury that's visible if you have the right brain scan. So we can see a healed brain looks different from an injured brain, and now we can treat it. And stellate ganglion block is a precision medicine way that does not involve a psychoactive medication that is often highly effective in treating the worst symptoms of trauma, often within um, a single visit or two visits to a clinic. Um, And I'm not somebody who's a true believer, I was honored to work with Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors as their senior director. 
for suicide prevention and postvention initiatives for three years. And I worked with people who have lost military loved ones to suicide. That was my focus. And so I know what's at stake here. And when you see the possibility of a life-saving, potentially life-saving intervention come forward, I think people need to know about it and find out how it can be an option if they want it. Yeah, very important too, because again, I mentioned my spouse because this affects the entire family, mm-hmm. not, just, not just a member. And as Michael put it in his documentary, I mean, you have testimony from different people. Michael, what was the most telling sign when you started digging deep into this issue of post-traumatic stress and all of the avenues that we have to correct that? What was the aha moment that you had during the filming of the documentary? Well, you know, the great news, when I first started, I didn't know if there was anything out there that could actually help. I just wanted to find something. So we started researching and looking for, and the great news is we found things that do work. So for me, the aha moment is that you can get your life back. Uh, There are solutions and you can get off the medications, you know, not to say that we're against medications. That's not what we're saying, but there's a lot of antipsychotic medications that are black labeled and very dangerous and have dangerous side effects like depression, suicidal ideation. And so there's, you know, every person in our film happens to be off their medications or those medications. Uh, They may take other things for other physical issues, but they're off the antipsychotic medications, which is good, but they have their lives back. These are people who literally thought there was no hope. Uh, One gal, she said, when she heard somebody was doing better with the post-traumatic stress, she's like, whatever. She goes, they think they found unicorns. They don't exist. There's no way I'm gonna ever get better. She's now better. And she says things like uh, life is worth living. Others have said, I feel like a soldier again. Someone else said, I've never been happier in my entire life. These were people who were suicidal and had no hope. So the aha moment is there is hope. (laughs) You can get your life back. You can live a happy, fulfilling life after post-traumatic stress. So that's what the film is about and why it was so exciting to get to produce it and release it, save lives. Well, something like Michael. Oh, I was just going to piggyback on that a little bit, if I could. Um, There isn't any one right treatment for everybody. You know, as we innovate, we need to get better and better at defining which treatment for which profile of a patient. You know, are the symptoms more on the anxiety side? Is there a traumatic brain injury? Does that influence how we need to treat um, the, the challenges that people face? But the big epiphany for me is that for years I had been trying to do trauma therapy with people who are in the wrong mind state. Mm-hmm. When you are chronically overactivated and your fight or flight system is locked in and you can't throttle back, you are unable to benefit from um, things like talk therapy that helps you change the underlying thinking and behavior. You're going to be so distracted by your level of hyper arousal that it's going to be hard to even be in the room with a healer. Um, and so not only does it you know, affect therapy, but it also, to your point, SIAC, it affects absolutely your spouse, your family. It becomes a family issue. And so it's so important that we recognize those collateral effects and really look at secondary PTSD as part of this picture. No, great points. And something that I learned, I I recently completed a month-long tenure at NICO, at the National Intrepid Center of Excellence. And the one thing that I found out is that I do not qualify for PTSD. 
because I didn't meet the three criteria. Now, the hypervigilance, the hyperarousal, all of that stuff is, is there. But the one thing that I do not possess is that I'm not segregating myself from society. I'm still able to function in society until I get to crowded spaces and then the hypervigilance just takes over. So, but still, you know, even for the two out of the three, uh, the treatment works. Uh, to me, I'm, I'm more relaxed, I'm more rational, I'm not edgy, I don't wanna go ahead and go into choke con alpha on people immediately when, they, when I get uh, hyper aroused. But I mean, it's, it's helping me a productive member. And you mentioned hope and you mentioned change for many of these people. What are some of the things that you think the average person out there that is looking for help can do right now to go ahead and explore some of these initiatives? I think they need to realize that they're not helpless. You know, when you feel like you're not even in control of your own body, when you get overrun with adrenaline or anger that seems to come from nowhere, and then you act on it and you feel ashamed, um, or you get flooded with panic or anxiety attacks, it makes you feel like you're not even in control of your own physical body that's gonna be a problem. Um, and so I think really the, the shift needs to be that there are different treatments that can target the biological injury of those hyper arousal symptoms. And that's a critical point you just made is that we're missing, one of the paradigm shifts is we're missing so many people because we're so fixated on this trauma story. What is the index trauma? What is that horrifying event that kicked off this trauma response that gives you this diagnosis. We're looking for this coherent narrative. And I would submit to you that most people who are deployed in a situation that's unpredictable, chaotic, very dangerous, are going to come away from that changed. And they are going to come away from that with this set of challenges that's not a diagnosis that I've been calling chronic threat response. It's a shift from being fundamentally open and pursuing life and relationships to being guarded and defensive and reactive and filtering everything in your life through a sense of the possible threat that could be there. And so that's not a diagnosis. Chronic threat response is just a, a phrase I coined to describe the mind state of so many people who serve in the military and first responder populations who suffer nonetheless and for whom there is treatment, regardless of whether the diagnosis um, of PTSD applies or not. So I think that's a critical piece of connecting to hope. What do you think, Michael? I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> you know, what I wanted to say also is that one of the things is that a lot of people are afraid to go out and potentially get help because they're afraid they're gonna to have to talk about the trauma, face the trauma. And what's great about Stella Ganglion Block and many of the uh, options featured in the film is that you do not have to talk about the trauma at all. And yet you get complete relief and the post-traumatic stress behind you. And I think that's a key element that people need to understand. They don't have to be afraid to get help because of the fear of those feelings and everything coming up all over again because of what they experienced in that trauma in the past. Um, so, and something else I've realized, and I wanted to ask you both about this is we have a lot of people who are watching the film, of course, all over the world and all over the United States and Canada, 
But what's interesting is how many people who want to see it, who need to see it, are afraid to see it. And that's been kind of shocking to me. And I think my guess is the reason they don't want to, in this case, watch or see Wounded Heroes, the documentary, or even go after some of these treatments that um, Doc Springer talks about, is that they're just afraid it's going to be a trigger. They're afraid they're going to have to face the post-traumatic stress. So I'm curious, what do you both have to say to encourage people that they should go ahead and get help? They shouldn't put it off and they can look at the film without worrying about triggers. It's just, uh, I, I don't want people to be afraid to get help because they're afraid of what could happen if they try to get help. And we, I think it's important to encourage people to know that they can get help and it can be successful and lasting. Ziak, do you want to take that first or do you want me to go first? I'll go ahead and give it a shot, Doc, because, you know, I'm one of those cases that I didn't want to talk about anything. And then finally, when I started coming open, at first it was a relief. But then the, my frustration came in our current system. I had to tell that story about seven times in gross detail because the systems were just not communicating with one another. And it became really frustrating for me because you're talking about triggers there's nothing worse than having to live through that experience over again and admitting to the fact, number one, that you have been lying to yourself and others, telling them that you're okay when you haven't been. You've been trying to mask this, uh, this monster that was slowly growing inside of you. And then just having to tell someone that feels like it's going through a process. Um, okay, so why is it that you're here again? It's like, I thought you knew I have this long chart of everything that I decided to spill the beans on. But I, I think that that is one of the reasons why most people do not get help because they just don't want to face that, Michael. And when you said the triggers from seeing other people getting help, I, I think that that is critical. But the good thing about it is, is that once you come, come clean about it and somebody actually has the data and you start seeing the progress of the help, man, you start getting that life back in you and you start uncaging those demons, you know, via different mechanisms to be able to be a functioning member of society. Doc, uh, over to you. Yeah, I mean, to your, the, to the culture you set here for this podcast, I'm going to speak bluntly. Many patients don't want to disclose the worst day of their life repeatedly to someone they don't have the trust with. Um, and every time you have to get a new provider, the trust breaks a little bit more in between those transitions where you feel like I've opened myself up, I've taken a risk. And now in the transfer, that information didn't transfer, that story didn't transfer. That isn't therapeutic disclosure to keep repeatedly having to disclose, even to somebody with a license, you haven't built the trust with them. So for my organization at Stella, we say, you know, early on when people call in, we say, we want you to know this is not going to be a place where we're going to be asking you about your trauma story in detail. And that comes as a huge relief to people because we really don't need to know it to Michael's point to help them get relief. And we actually go so far as to say, we want to make sure that that sharing happens in the context of a relationship with a trusted doc that you have follow-up with. That's the way to, to hold people's trust and, and confer dignity to them in that treatment process. And so we really wanna be careful about protecting them against that kind of unhelpful, untherapeutic over-disclosure. Um, and so I would also say, you know, uh, we have both seen the movie, uh, Siak, you and I, and so I can say, speaking for myself, 
Um, I was somebody who actually advised Michael on, on some parts of the movie. And I know that there's nothing in there that's going to be probably a graphic PTSD trigger, but you wouldn't know that if you hadn't seen it. So, you know, he doesn't, um, as other movies I've seen will tend to do, he doesn't glory in the carnage, the emotional carnage of this. This is not a movie about that. This is a movie about where hope lies and where treatments are available and the innovative things that people are doing. And you'll see people come through that process of healing and finding hope and reconnecting to hope. So I don't think there's a risk with this movie um, relatively. I mean, there's always a possibility, but there's not a very high risk that there's going to be a lot of triggers in the movie. No, and I think that one of the critical things that Michael's probably referring to is the fact that they're going to have to face the music when they when they watch something like that. But the one thing that they can get out of it, and, and Michael, you can follow up on this, is the fact that they're not alone, man. There's a lot of people out there that are struggling with the same issues. Hell, I'm struggling with issues, and I'm seeking help as the most senior enlisted person in the entire Department of Defense. And the Chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff is good with it. The combatant commanders are good with it. The Chiefs of the Services are good with it. So what is holding you back from getting the help that you need? And if it's lack of trust in the system, then I have your back. But I want you to get help and then I can help you navigate through this, uh, through this field to be able to make sure that we get you right, not only for yourself, but for your families, Michael. You know, over to you. Well, I have heard some veterans tell me that they still have their superior officers telling them, don't go back home, get out of the military and say you've got post-traumatic stress and be a something negative. You know, they use the P word, you know, uh, you're a soldier, you're an American soldier. Don't go back home. And that's just the wrong message. And that's why I so appreciate what you're doing, being at the top of the military and being so honest about your struggles. All that can yeah. do is save lives. All that can do is encourage others anywhere in the military to do the same. And something else that I think Doc Springer can talk about, she talks about it in the movie, is the importance, as you said, you're not alone. Get together with like-minded people. We feature a couple of different programs in the film, organizations, one that uh, Doc Springer's part of here on the West Coast, uh, that are amazing. And you get a whole new group of people to work together with. You have each other's back, people you can check up on, people you can talk to if you're having a difficult time. That's important in the recovery process as well, correct, Doc? Yes, definitely. You know, one of the big, another shift I think we need to make is actually developing a new model for care, which will meaningfully and strategically combine biological, psychological, and mind-body practice. So the biological is like the primer before the paint. When people are in the right mind state, when they're calm in their own bodies, they're able to get a whole different traction with all of the therapy that I do um, or you know, used to do that our talk therapy docs are doing for people across the country. And then the mind body practice is really important as well for helping people sustain the gains and find that new normal. So I've been working really hard to develop partnerships that provide this meaningful pairing of care. Mission 22 is one example. They have a phenomenal after care program. I mean, it's a joint care program really where people get an SGB from Stella and then they go for a year of wraparound support with Mission mm -hmm. 22. And what's really cool is that this is cutting edge stuff where they're collecting real-time data, biometric data. 
I've been looking at this data. I saw a data um, point yesterday with somebody who we just treated. I was able to see that right after the stellate ganglion block, his sleep improved his REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep improved by 40%. So that's critical because that's the part of sleep where we process things, where we make meaning of things, where we, you know, make sense of things and file them away so that they're not um, so overwhelmingly disturbing. And so if we can really shift to your point, SIAC, to, to see this as an injury, it's an injury, not a disorder, um, and really help people understand if you had a tank and it was like an armored tank and it was really well built and you didn't maintain it, like it never went to the shop, it would run down over time if you didn't maintain it and you didn't address the normal issues of just the entropy that happens in any system that falls apart over time. And you wouldn't then, when it was breaking down, go back and say, well, it must not have been well built in the first place. You know, it must have been, you know, weak or deficient in the first place. No, it was a tank. It was built as a tank. You just have to maintain it. So if we can kind of shift the paradigm to that, I think it will really eliminate the stigma and help people come in and follow your leadership example of getting the care that they need and getting to a place of healing. Yeah, and the stigma is a big word out there right now because a lot of people have just extreme fear of seeking help because they don't want that scarlet letter pinned on them. But I'll tell you that most of the frustrations that our force is seeing out there is, is just that. Number one is that they may be labeled as something that they don't want to carry for the rest of their life. The second part is the frustration that they're just a number. They're just another case and not necessarily an individual with specific issues that need to be addressed. Now, Doc, you mentioned the whole, the holistic approach to be able to go ahead and deal with this from the biological to the physical and uh, the mental aspect of it. And I'm currently pitching a proposal to the Department of Defense of creating something called the Human Performance and Optimization Center. And this is just this is just a program to where you can go to any clinic in the Department of Defense. And it's almost like a food court. And, you know, if you have spiritual issues, you go to this one particular section. If you have, you know, behavioral health issues, then you go to the specific person. If you have some musculoskeletal issues or you want to get strong, you go to this particular uh, section. Nutrition as another example and so on. So there's eight dimensions total in there. And I think that the best way to explain it is, you know, anybody that has been the in the military, they know what happens when you go to the sick bay for sick call. It doesn't matter what kind of ailment you have. Everybody's comfortable sitting in that room and they know that they're going to go ahead and be called upon. Somebody's going to hear them out. They're going to get fixed. And then if they get sick again, they come back. Not the same case for the mental health hallway. You feel dirty when you go down that hallway. At least I did. And I, my wife put it in the best context when she told me, she's like, all right, the reason people are comfortable in sick bay is because everybody gets sick, right? It's a common thing. Everybody needs help. But what would it look like if you had a separate line for herpes? Do you think people will be lined up in that line? Because now, now you're getting specific and embarrassing. So why don't we do the same with uh, behavioral health and mental health? And I think that creating this human performance and optimization centers will take the stigma away from it. And it's a cool place to go because you know you're going to get strong, whether it's mind, body, nutrition, and so on. But what are your thoughts on that? 
I love that idea. Throw a good yeah. coffee shop in there along with it <laughs> that they can find tribe and, you know, collectively just feel like part of that tribe and like everybody else. Right. And I just, I love it. Um, I think it gives people a new set point for how they can really get well in any dimension and that it is, you know, the challenges we face in the biological injury of exposure to trauma or just chronic threat response, just that shift. There are treatments that are available now that we can um, provide to patients and, and they also need to work in concert with other providers. So medicine really is a team sport as Doc Jim Lynch once said, he didn't make that up, but I first heard it from him. And we really need to have um, radical collaboration that's meaningful, not just I'm gonna send a referral to this service or that service and it all happens virtually. We need docs talking to docs about how do we coordinate that patient care because you're right. Like one of the, this is what my book Warrior is, is largely about, is how do we rebuild the trust with those who protect us? If we're healers and we want to heal people, how do we engage that trust and overcome those substantial barriers to care? Because I'll tell you what would happen in the first scheme to your wife's point, we would have rampant untreated cases of herpes mm -hmm. everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Because if there was a separate line, people wouldn't get the care that they need and they deserve. And that's what we're trying to do with Michael's film is destigmatize it, show the possibility of new treatments and hope, change the model to an injury, engage in holistic care and partnerships. We have partnership with Green Beret Foundation, with Mission 22, with Connected Warriors. They do yoga. So I love that idea personally. I do too. I think it's a brilliant idea. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you know, I hope Janet doesn't uh, do, do choke on alpha on me for bringing the whole herpes thing over here. And by the way, for the audience, this is not a podcast about herpes, all right? We're talking about PTS and TBI and uh, and the issues that come along with it. But uh, you know, along with that, I would just like to share with the audience and and with you too that one of the greatest values that I got out of Nico wasn't any evasive medical treatment. I mean, I got the scans, I got a lot of uh, labs and a lot of other things that yoga, art therapy and so on, which we'll get into that here in just a second. But the best thing that I got out of Nyko was self-awareness on how these things were all connected and what I needed to do. If we can have the HPOCs, the Human Performance and Optimization Centers, Go ahead and give everyone a tailored approach based on their needs on awareness. We're going to be left of the band. We're going to be on the preventative side, which is going to save millions, if not billions of dollars in healthcare because people are going to be in the habit of taking better care of themselves. Michael, what do, what do you think? Well, I, I completely agree. It will save a lot of money and, and helping people sooner rather than later. It's so much more beneficial in so many ways, including how it affects their, their lives, their families, their work, their sleep, and getting that resolved sooner uh, saves the money, but it also, it's a benefit in so many other ways as well. And one of the things I wanted to also mention, Doc Springer uh, has talked about this and not one treatment is perfect for every single person. Mm -hmm. there, you know, you've got your own personality, what you think might work for you. You know, we talk about horse therapy. There's something called RTM in the film. We talk about reconsolidation of traumatic memories. And I met a guy, he was actually in the film, Jan Dan Jarvis. He runs 220.org. 
and his work is absolutely amazing. It's very similar to RTM, but he calls it uh, TRP, Trauma Resiliency Protocol. And it's a neurological intervention so that you can still remember the trauma, but the emotion connected to it has completely been severed. So you can talk about it now without feeling any emotion or anything negative in regards to that trauma. And that's really fascinating when I learned about that. And I've had people who haven't slept in 40 years, plus years, Vietnam veterans after one session slept through the night like babies. And that's got to be dramatic in their lives, having never slept in 40 plus years through the night to now finally get to after one session, you know, on average, it's three to six sessions, but still some one session, that's nuts. So there's all these great things that are helpful. And if a place like what you're talking about has all these different options, people can do what they need that's best for them. And I think it's a brilliant idea. And maybe they can get service dogs, you know, kind of started as part of that for those for whom it would benefit. Michael, you profiled equine therapy, which Mm -hmm. has, I think, tremendous untapped potential around moral injury. It's a different thing than post-traumatic stress, but it's a common thing that many warriors struggle with. And if you watch the movie, you see the people in that segment go from a place of feeling shut down and withdrawn from life and kind of ashamed to feeling like warriors again. And so that is the power of finding the right treatment and seeing people as an individual, gaining Mm -hmm. that trust, holding that trust. Uh, One of the partnerships that Stella has is with Operation Freedom Paws, and they um, pair veterans with service dogs. And then they go through a long training process of helping them where the dog becomes a therapeutic agent and helping them rebuild trust with others in society. The dog forces them to interact with others in society, brings them out of their shell um, and you know, helps them navigate situations that they might have avoided. So I absolutely agree that you know, it really needs to be tailored to the individual and very specific um, as well. I think you know, there need to be insights on things that we're missing. You talked about TAPS. TAPS does a world-class, just field-leading work in how to recover from the grief and loss, which is a huge issue for people this year. Um, So I learned much from TAPS about grief and loss. But even before I went there, I knew that the sessions I had with patients who just lost someone to suicide, a brother or sister in arms, were particularly dangerous times, very high risk. And we need to understand how to walk with people through grief. We need to understand how to understand survivor guilt. I think it's more related to suicidal ideation. Shame and guilt um, are more related to suicidal ideation for warriors than depression is in many cases. So I think we're missing the boat by a nautical mile on many things. And my book Warrior is really about how to understand relationship conflict, moral injury, survivor guilt, shame and guilt, Um, all of those things, grief from an entirely new set of insights. And would love to see those kinds of insights be adopted into a holistic program that gives people the intel they need to overcome mental battles. Well, I I do have to share with you, Doc, that uh, when I read your book, I I didn't know if I should hug you or sue you because I'm like, man, who authorized her to write this uh, autobiography of my life? You know, because I mean, everything, everything just resonated, 
you know, and uh, it, it's just common across the force. We just get to experience this kind of stuff. And then there's certain things, because we were talking about the animal therapy and so on and some of the other things that we have out there. So I wanted, I wanted to focus on the animal side because, you know, the, the dogs clearly have helped quite a bit. Equine therapy has helped. But sometimes these things are accidental because one of the places where I got the worst triggers of my life was when I was living in the Middle East not deployed, but living in Qatar. The place that I lived resembled resemble some of the roads and the areas that I operated in before. Uh, the sites, the smells, the mosque just right down the road, the prayers at different times. All of that was very, very taxing on the mind. And we decided to rescue a dog in Qatar, Mabel, which is the dog, Michael, that you saw in the video that you shared on LinkedIn when Janet and I had that open conversation about our struggles. But that dog alone, I mean, ended up helping the both of us. I mean, put us in a better place because our focus was now in taking care of her and giving her a better life. And she gives it right back. I mean, so Mabel is just a saint to, to us. But let's talk a little bit more about the animal therapy. What are some of the things that people can do to get into those programs based on your research? Oh, go ahead, Doc. You want to talk about that? Or do you want me to talk? Uh, I want to talk about Mary Cortani for a second. She's the uh, executive director of Operation Freedom Paws. She's an Army veteran. She was a dog handler in the military. And so she's part of the tribe and really um, is a true dog whisperer. It becomes people whisperer, too, because she says, I don't give people the dogs they want. I give them the dogs they need. So a lot of veterans come into the program and they want like a Rottweiler, Doberman, you know, some kind of pit bull that's kind of a protective dog. And sometimes she will pair them with the fluffy white dog they didn't see coming that changes their whole life. Hmm. Um, I saw, you know, a case of that happening. I, I went down and did a site visit with Operation Freedom Paws and they do something called puppy yoga where they literally have the dog and the veteran co-regulate. What that means is kind of, together, um, soothe and, and regulate each other's nervous systems together. So she does really innovative work at Operation Freedom Paws. And there are other organizations as well. Um, I know Lazy Lab Hunting Club just uh, said, we're sponsoring a number of service dogs and they work with um, you know America's Vet Dogs, I believe, um, to really bring people this opportunity to have an attachment with uh, with a dog that will not judge them, will be looking out for them with their nose. They can smell mm. uh, the different chemistry that people have when they go into you know, a heightened state of anxiety or anger. A dog can sense that with their nose, which is really interesting and can alert and you know, sort of distract them from that. So I think there's so much potential with that animal human connection, both with equine therapy and moral injury and PTSD. Mm. And with canine therapy, what do you think, Michael? Yeah, I completely agree. And, and with the horse therapy, what was great, we featured a uh, organization in San Diego called Saddles of Service, but there are horse therapy locations all over the country. And it was interesting just meeting these veterans and first responders, police officers, firefighters, whose lives were completely changed because of a horse and the connection they had. And the fact that like dogs, these horses, they know what you're feeling. They can, they can sense it and um, they kind of bond with the person who needs them. And what's great about Saddles and Service, all of their horses are rescue horses. And so they say, 
that the veteran and the first responder and the horses, they heal each other as they connect, they heal each other, which is really powerful. And I had a uh, assistant fire chief in Canada uh, watch the film. He got really excited about uh, the horse therapy and found one about an hour away from his house and uh, drove there. And he, he sent me a message right away saying, this changed my life. I love this. And he's a real go-getter. And so he's now in the process of setting up horse therapy all over Canada. So others can experience what he experienced because of what he saw in the film and how these men and women connected with a horse and how it changed their lives. Yeah. And, and the shoe is not always going to fit. I mean, some people are just going to go ahead and gravitate away from the horses because it's not their thing. Some people just don't like dogs and everything else. But there's always something for someone. Another accidental therapy that I encountered was music. So I remember uh, I left the Joint Special Operations Command the first time in 2005 after several tours in uh, combat. And my close friend, Troy McLawhorn, uh, and my wife, you know, were just talking about guitar playing. And Troy actually said, hey, man, you know, have you ever tried to go ahead and do this? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not that hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's frustrating at times, but it's not that hard. So I started learning to play guitar. And, you know, I'm at a point right now to where I'm pretty comfortable, you know, playing instruments. But uh, that is another avenue. What is your experience with uh, the other methods like music therapy and so on? Music therapy, art therapy, these are all ways to take inner chaos and give them a voice. And so different modalities, mm -hmm. to your point, will really work for different people. My interest is in seeing people have options for treatment and empowering them on their journey because trauma takes away people's power. And the way to return it is to give them options for treatment that may be effective for them. I really like your vision for this comprehensive performance uh, optimization, the clinics, that's a really beautiful model. And there was a really good piece of news yesterday that in the state of Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania House unanimously voted to forward the Treat PTSD Act to President Biden to implore him to sign it, which would make stellate ganglion block available across the VA for veterans free of charge. Not forcing anybody to get it, just saying, this is a first line option that you can get if you want it. Uh, not a last resort after everything else has failed you and you're feeling like maybe nothing is gonna work for me. We shouldn't be waiting. Given the stakes, people are dying. We shouldn't be waiting for them to go through every other treatment before they're given the option of having a treatment that could be life-saving for them. So I'm all about all the different options and people being empowered to choose what works for them. Now, that is, and that is critical right there. Options is what we need because we need tailorable, tailorable approaches for each person and not necessarily the cookie cutter. This is what we have, take it or leave it. You know, something, uh, something that I learned from my cohort uh, during NICON, I had two uh, army operators with me and a naval operator as uh, my partners in there. And uh, our story was very similar all the way across. And one of the therapies that actually caught us by surprise was art therapy. And I want to go ahead and give a shout out to Miss Adrian Stamper for uh, being our therapist uh, during our tenure in there. But uh, three of us chose to do masks and one chose to do a painting. And what we found at the end of the, of the, 
of the cohort was that we left quite a bit of baggage at NICO on those masks because we were able to just go ahead and uh, offload some of the feelings, the anger, the numbness, and many other things that we were feeling at the time. Uh, what, what, uh, what do you guys think about our therapy? I love it. We had um, at TAPS, we had a really gifted art therapist named Sharon Strauss that used to run the part of the seminar that was the art clinic. And uh, the art studio would have the masks. Um, I actually did one myself at one point just to kind of try it and, and see. I like to wear indicated, um, try the interventions that I think other people might benefit from. Um, and so she did that and they made dolls as well that reminded them of their loved ones to give a tangible form to those that they had lost. They um, also did collages that were just beautiful collages that took that inner pain and gave it a voice. That is part of what helps heal us is you take that inexpressible, indescribable pain and you give it a shape and you give it a voice and you express it communally with other people who are worthy of that trust. And that is part of what heals us. So I think absolutely art. Uh, my friend Joe Merritt is a really talented veteran artist and he does some work, I think with an art program that's going into Fort Bragg, if I'm remembering, and Walter Reed and, and making that art therapy available. So, you know, he'd be somebody kind of in his organization as well on the cutting edge of that kind of uh, treatment. So, yeah, Michael, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, uh, in addition, um, there's to art therapy there. And as you said, music therapy, which is also incredibly beneficial. Uh, I interviewed a gal in the documentary from San Diego, and she said her local VA is that has an amazing programs that she's taking advantage of boating, uh, badminton, archery, uh, just going out and getting away for a weekend, three, four nights out in the middle of nowhere, in the mountains, unplugging and being with like-minded people. It was, has been life-changing. Uh, there are so many great options in addition to, you know, some of the things we featured in the film, but the things you're talking about and Dr. Springer are talking about that really are helpful. Yeah. And, you know, in the video that you ended up sharing on LinkedIn, Michael, I call myself a functioning broken man. And little did I know that I was doing self-therapy without even knowing it because I mentioned Mabel coming into our life. I mentioned music, you know, I'm also a cartoonist, so I like to draw and I like to do uh, different things. I love writing. I always kept uh, this most kind books. I have about 17 most kind books with notes, thoughts, you know, when I had a bad day, when I had a good day, when I had a dream, the recurring nightmares, everything else. I recorded everything just to be able to go ahead and put it someplace other than my head. And then lastly, you know, I had just this passion for the outdoors, mountaineering, mountain biking, and so on. So I was kind of like self-applying therapy to me without even knowing it. Unfortunately, that is not the case for people, like you mentioned, that have been demoralized because of the lack of sleep and everything else. And then they lose the motivation to do all of these things. So again, providing them the awareness and a forum was like, hey, if you haven't tried this, you should, because it's going to help you go ahead and be better. So I think that that is a place where we need to be. Mm. Yeah, I think the sequencing is the critical point. If you treat the biological injury first, then people feel the motivation, the willingness. Mm. Now, stellate ganglion block, unfortunately, is named stellate ganglion block 
because it came out of the anesthesiology and pain clinic field and they do nerve blocks, but it's not a block. It doesn't block your ability to respond. It actually, when you get calm in your own body, it actually opens you up to a range of positive feelings and an openness. Um, and people will say, um, like my friend Joe that I just mentioned, he got treated, walked around Chicago and he said, I forgot how beautiful the world is when my brain stops telling me it's trying to kill me. Wow. So when you sequence things first with the, the biological injury and then everything else, the psychologist, a trusted doc with the right insights, not just standard thinking, not everything we keep hearing about what's you know putting people at risk, but really understanding survivor guilt, shame, grief, all of those things that I feel like we need a better understanding of. And then also the holistic treatments, art, music, yoga, um, that's going to be the way forward. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm going to, I, I told the audience that I was going to say something about Michael, but I think we're at the right spot where I can bring this up. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I think dancing therapy is something that, uh, that we, and you know where I'm going with this one, Michael. I do. So, um, we're, <laughs> For those of you who don't know, so Michael was a member of the Torrance Dance Club, uh, who was featuring the Praise You video from Fat Boy Slim back in the 90s. And he told me this story, and I, I was just laughing because I was just like, man, this is the most ridiculous group of people ever. And Michael was dancing them awesome. And tell us a little bit about that, Michael. Yeah, that was a fun <laughs> video. Um, and I don't quite understand why, but the entire world just loved it. It was, you know, we were very strange uh, 80s outfits doing these weird dances. So we called things the fishy, the, the Julie Andrews were flying around and just all these weird things. But for some reason, the entire world ended up loving it. They said all of the clubs all over the world, the, when the Praise You song came on, all the uh, kids in the clubs were doing our weird dance moves from the video. So we got nominated for three MTV awards. We got to perform live at the MTV awards in New York in 99. And then we got nominated for four awards. We won three. That's what it was. And so it was a really fun, exciting time. But yeah, uh, it, it was a strange video with strange dancers. But they hired us as dancers, but also actors. We had to act as though we were from Torrance. I had never been there. And then we had to act as though we were part of the Torrance community dancers. But we had never there was no such group. We just created it for the video and the whole world thought we really were a legitimate uh, organization <laughs> dancers, but we weren't. <laughs> I knew that was, I was hoping you'd get that in there. See that you just made my day that you brought that up. I think part of the appeal, Michael, is that like all the dances you did could mm -hmm. be done by anybody for once, you know, <laughs> it was like dance for all, you know, even for people like me that can't really dance, you know, I can do that. So everybody was invited to join in the, the silliness and it was just yeah i'm so glad you brought this up no you know because humor is another great factor that helps people get through uh trauma and i know and and doc i'm gonna come to the topic of tribe because i think that that is really important but in my tribe that's how we cope with a lot of uh issues it was usually humor and then we had beer you know, so it was making fun of things, making fun of the worst of situations, and it helped us get through the day and, and so on. And when the dancing therapy brought, was brought to my tribe at NICO, we're like, hell no, we're not going to do that. We'll do yoga instead. We're not going to dance. So again, you know, there's something for everyone when it comes to that. 
But uh, I believe that humor, like I mentioned, it's just a, it's just a great tool to use when you are, you know, in a, in a, in a tough situation. So let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about the tribes, because I will be the first to say that if I had any outsiders in my cohort at NICO, I don't believe that I would have been as open. But it just so happened that every single person in my cohort was a tier one operator. So we were in, in the family. And when we started talking, it was like, holy crap, do you live in my house, dude? I mean, really, you're going through the same, your wife told you the same thing that mine told me last week. I mean, that was the dynamic that we had. And you just created a core group that actually was very similar and it helped us out. So uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the tribe, uh, Doc. Sure. So that's a great question. So trust is the lifeblood of performance. It's the lifeblood of what heals us and brings us to a new state of wellness when we feel like people see us and they there is a trust there. And that is why I get so concerned about the message, you know, just go to therapy, just go to therapy. And sometimes when people go to therapy, there's a huge cultural and trust gap between the person who is being supported and the healer. And really that's, you know, a central focus of my work as well as to kind of, again, shift the model, for example, with moral injury. I found that with moral injury, the best kind of treatment, the most powerful treatment that I could do was actually to facilitate a tribal healing process. So I brought in a group of people, the more similar, the better, and really took them through a process of healing each other. They become the moral authority that is able to release each other from that toxic, potentially lethal shame. And so it wasn't that I was the hero of the situation or the savior as the doc. No, I was a healer that walked with them and facilitated a tribal intervention. And so bringing people together into reunions and retreats. I'm about to head down to the hill country in Texas um, in about two weeks, long trip out to Texas for about 48 hours, because I want to see these Marines that I support every year. They're Marines of two, seven and two, three. They have organically started something years ago and I've attended every year, but last year, and we bring the tribe together and then we confront grief. We confront loss. We confront shame. We confront lack of um, hope as they move forward and, and they become warriors again. And then they drop a thousand pounds of weight on those weekends one way or another. And it's not because of something I did. It's because um, there is a facilitation of the healing power of that trust that exists and is, is really truly a thing within the tribe. So that makes perfect sense to me that this group that you went through with was a critical element in your healing experience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the pessimist will say misery loves company. But the one thing that I found out in those uh, four weeks is that healing also likes company, too. So, uh, Michael, when you travel around, you got to experience different uh, uh, sectors of the people that are doing this help. What were the dynamics that you saw when it came to the interaction of those groups? Because some of them were pretty far apart. You had the combat trauma people, then you have people that were not uh, combat trauma related, but they all wanted to get to the same place. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you saw there? Yeah, I think because they're 
they came from different places, but they were all battling the same thing, post-traumatic mm -hmm. stress. And so they had that common goal of getting that out of their lives. And one of the things that Doc Springer talks about in the film at the end is the importance of tribe. But it's like when you're in battle overseas and you need help or you need backup, you call for it. You know, the Air Force can come in and, and help you out and drop the bombs or, you know, the drone or, you know, you work together as a team and having each other's back and working as a team, you can take out the enemy. And now that you're home battling post-traumatic stress, you can do the same thing and you should work together with others, have each other's back, form new bonds, find a new mission, but get healed together. You should never fight the battle alone. And that's one of the things I learned firsthand watching it, but I also learned from Doc Springer as she explained it. Yeah, and that is something that the tribe can do. But something else that I want to touch upon, which I don't feel like we have always gotten it right, is the bedside manners of the providers that are, you know, uh, treating our personnel nowadays. I mentioned that sometimes you feel like a number, sometimes you feel like your your issues are not that important, that they just want to go ahead and put you out the door. So, Doc, uh, specifically to you. The approach that Nyko took with me was very personal, very intimate. I mean, and it was something that I knew that they were looking at me and not to get me out the door because they were stuck with me for four weeks. Um, but, you know, what is it that we can do better in our clinics to take care of people based on your experience and knowledge on this subject? So there's a huge difference between a doctor and a doc. And a doctor is somebody with a formal licensed degree. And there is a downside for many people to going through school for a very long time because it can create a sense of I'm the expert, I know this uh, struggle, and here's the treatment I'm going to provide to you as the expert healer and doctor. A doc is somebody who has a different approach to practice. And being a doc is not about having a doctoral degree, to be clear. It's about your philosophy and your approach to how you walk with those you support, or do you treat them from a distance, thinking that you're the authority and you're the expert on what they need. A doc sees you. A doc treats you as somebody who has dignity and uh, power and can control their own treatment journey, will put you very much in the driver's seat give you options, give you good insights and good information, be uniquely perceptive about where your struggle is and help you design a, a customized individualized treatment plan that is adapted to what you need and what the shape of your pain is. And we need that. We, there are not enough docs in the system. And mm -hmm. there's a huge cultural gap where, you know, a doctor says, uh, serving veterans or, or military service members is my job and I'm good at my job. Whereas a doc will think this is my calling and I want to get better and better at this. And when you orient your practice that way and you, you move in close and you build and hold that trust, people heal. They heal. There are outcomes you would not believe that I have been so privileged to see. It's part of why I love working with those in the military and their families, because once they understand the challenge and they're feeling empowered to go after it, they get better and they do amazing things when you respect them and give them the right kind of support and you build and hold that trust. Um, so I think we really need to look more deeply at that whole process of how we engage people in care. Because um, veterans, they can tell in a nanosecond nanosecond, whether you are there because it's a job or is it a calling? Mm. 
Yeah, and uh, I will tell you that that's the reason that I didn't seek help for close to 17 years because I just didn't trust people to go ahead and take care of my issues. I had my tribe, you know, I had my ways to cope. And, you know, if I go to them, you know, which I am now them as the, the senior listed advisor to the chairman, um, they can potentially put me out of service. And a lot of young men and women and uh, some that are not so young that have been dealing with 20 years of, uh, you know, continuous combat, uh, they're struggling with that decision. You know, I had a young man in my office here recently that he had a very, very strong fear of going back because every time he went to get help, he was being boarded to possibly be put out of service. And he's like, see, I, I cannot go through that again. You know, I love serving. I know that I'm worthy of serving and I have a lot to bring. I, I'm not done yet with this. And if we take people, you know, we, we talked about hope earlier, but if we take people that purpose away from them, man, that is, that is crushing. That is crushing for people. Yeah. Yep. It's a loss of your place in the tribe that mm. puts people at great risk for self-destructive thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, we have to stop telling people, as my friend Jennifer Tracy says, we have to stop telling people to go get help and then punish them when they do. Yes. Yeah. And that is a, a promise and a commitment that I have to every single person listening here during, during this podcast. And also as your uh, senior listed advisor to the chairman, that if you do come forward to get help, I will be by your side to make sure you get exactly what you need and what your family needs. So that's my word. That is my bond. And that's my promise to anybody that is seeking help. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. Awesome. So something that also came to mind as you were talking, Doc, is just for, for providers to be more kind and more mindful of the situation that they have in front of them, that no two people are going to have the same issues, that it's got to be a tellable approach for personnel to get help, and also for people to live with confidence for the follow-ons that they will have some continuity of care. So we have a lot of work to do in the Department of Defense when it comes to that. But I think we got the, the, the attention of key decision makers and the ones that are actually going to make this a reality for us here in the near future. And I have two and a half years left in my current position as a senior list advisor to the chairman. And this is going to be one of my heavy lists. And uh, my, my drive and motivation is to see this through. But obviously, I'm going to need to continue to collaborate with you, people in the industry, you know, outside entities that are actually finding out things that we in the Department of Defense haven't explored yet and get the data to see what works and that and put it in front of lawmakers and decision makers to ensure that we're doing the best. Because as I mentioned on the poster, you know, we owe them better than what we're giving them right now. And they have given us so much and we have to take care of them. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, you have my support, you know, please don't sue me for what I wrote in my book. If it resembles, you know, your personal experience, um, that means, you know, it's, it's striking a chord and I'll, I'll take that hug instead if that's all right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you have my support because this is leadership. This is what we need to see in terms of changing the paradigm. And we're at a critical point, you know, where we really need to think about a lot of things differently and really, um, look at things from a different lens. I think as well as a trust gap, there's a hidden class system in how we practice medicine where warfighters, veterans, service members come in, 
to a relationship where that treatment provider says, I outrank you in mm. certain ways with their behavior, with their choices, um, and trust outranks rank. And so if we can kind of lay aside what we think we know or what we think is going to be the best treatment and really meet people where they are and see them and really perceptively see them and design that tailored intervention that they feel empowered to tell us about, here's what I need. Um, that's how I found out about SGB. It was through a special forces medic who came to me. I was in the VA and he said, doc, have you ever heard of this? And I hadn't. And he said, I want you to get this for me if you can. And I want you to be in the OR. And at first I said, oh, I don't, I don't know. You know, I've never heard of this. An injection in the neck, it's going to calm your adrenaline system. That sounds really kind of weird. Um, but he encouraged me to be brave. And he said, you know me, I have the medical background. I understand why this would work theoretically in terms of medical systems, biological systems. And um, we trusted each other. And so I arranged for that. I was in the OR with him. And that's how I got my start is really getting out of my lane of just being a talk therapy provider and kind of zooming out and saying, what does this patient need? And then I started to think about who else have I been really trying to help, but they were so activated in their fight or flight system. They couldn't even hear me in the room. They just weren't even there in the room. Yeah. And so I treated about four or five people in the VA before I moved on. And then there was a steady stream of people that called me and said, I can't find another doc that I trust or I connect with. And mm -hmm. so I started sending them to Dr. Lipoff in Chicago. And they were sometimes calling me saying, this is my last call. I want to thank you for everything you've done. And mm -hmm. I would say, please, please hold on the trust that we have. Please hold. I want you to go to Chicago and try this. And so over this period of years where this wasn't my job, it was just saving lives of people that I really genuinely care about, um, came into this organization that we created, Dr. Lipov, myself, and a really you know, skilled team of Stella. And now we have 20 clinics across the country and two in Australia. So we have scaled up to meet the need for innovative treatments. And we're not just going to be doing Stella ganglion block because there's no one treatment. Uh, we do other treatments as well, and we'll be getting into other innovative treatment approaches as we... Um, find out what is the best treatment for different people with different challenges and give them those options. Yeah, Doc, you want to know my wife's favorite day of the week? What? It's the day, yeah. the day after I get my shot. So <laughs> uh, that, is, uh, that, is, that is just the truth. Uh, Michael, uh, as we come here to an end, any uh, parting comments that you would like to tell our audience? I just want people to know that they don't have to be afraid. They don't have to be nervous about getting help, that they can get post-traumatic stress behind them. And I, I can say that with confidence because I've talked to so many veterans and first responders and active duty who were miserable, suicidal, who now have their lives back. And you can too. Anybody watching this, you can too. Now, outstanding. And Doc, over to you. Any closing comments? I'd love to tell people where to find me. Um, and uh, that would be at www.drshawnaspringer.com. Stellacenter.com is a second resource if you want to learn more about Stella ganglion block, learn more about that treatment and, and you know where it's available. Um, and I would just say to close, um, I just really am honored to come on this podcast mm -hmm. and really resonate with 
how you're leading from the front with your own vulnerability and creating space for people to come. And I hope they take you up on that offer that if they step forward and they don't get the care they, they deserve, that they will be um, able to appeal and get that protection and that support so mm-hmm. that they can get healed and get well. Because sometimes, unfortunately, people at the higher ranks are able to get things that people lower in the ranks are not able to get. And I think that leadership and closing that gap by making that amazing um, statement of your commitment to them and your heart for them is just so critical. And I I deeply appreciate you. And and Michael, on that same note, uh, since Dak, uh, you know, brought this up, where can people reach you? Well, the film itself, uh, you can go to woundedheroesdocumentary.com. And there are links there to Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, all these different platforms where you can see the film. And there's also a contact page there on the website and people can reach out to me through the contact page. Uh, Something else that I would like to leave the audience, you know, myself with is that health, your health, that of yours and your family is a national security issue. We need to make sure that we maintain the weapon system just like we do ships, aircraft, tanks, vehicles, weapons, because it is important to go ahead and keep everything on the best shape possible to be able to execute the mission. And that is our commitment to you, to be able to go ahead and get the help that you need so that we can get the best version of you and be able to defend the nation. So in closing, I would just like to thank Doc and Michael for being here today. I also would like to give a shout out here to my team that is recording this this event, specifically Master Sergeant Michael uh, Cowley, who is uh, the master behind everything that you see around here. But I also would like to thank all of the senior enlisted leaders and commanders out there that are taking care of our people. And if you're listening, please, you know, help us in this endeavor to make sure that we break this stigma away from this important issue that is taking care of the human weapon system. And lastly, if you would like to know more about us, please look us up on our Facebook page, the Joint Staff Facebook page, and the Joint Staff YouTube and Instagram. So this has been your Bottom Line Up Front podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to seeing you the next time. And cut. So, guys, thank you so much.